Well, let me add my welcome to Ken's. It's great to have you all with us this morning. And if you happen to be our guest, I do look forward to the, to the privilege of getting to meet you in person after our service. But welcome to uh, uh, our continuing study in the book of Exodus. Now, you know, one of the things that's frustrating to many of us who spend very much time in the Bible is all the things that the Bible doesn't tell us, right? We, we read the scriptures and it creates these questions for us, and, and it doesn't really care to give us the answer to those questions, right? There's more to the story that we want to really know. Just a couple of examples, right? A lot of us would like to know what happened to the 12 apostles, right? I mean, they play a big role in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're, they're at the beginning of the book of Acts, and then all of a sudden, most of them we never hear from again. You know, we, we know that Paul, who kind of is a later apostle, he's, he's there at the end of the story in the book of Acts and kind of hanging around the city of, of Rome, and, and, and we think he's probably close to execution, but we don't know for sure. We know James, the brother of John, you know, he gets executed in chapter 4 or 5 of the book of Acts, and we know John lives to be pretty old through some of the other writings that we see, but we don't really know how he, the rest of them, we have no idea what happened to them. And a lot of, wouldn't you like to know what happened to Matthew or Thomas or Nathaniel or Philip or all those guys? But pfft, nothing. We don't get anything. How about this one? How many of you would like to know where the wives for Adam and Eve's sons came from? <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And, and, and it doesn't tell us, right? We don't, we don't get anything on that, right? The, 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 uh, the Rwandan pastors, when we taught Genesis a couple of years ago, they, they really wanted to know what happened when Potiphar met Joseph again, after Joseph became the most important figure in Egypt after Pharaoh. If, if you don't know the story or not, I mean, Joseph had been sold off into slavery, landed up in Potiphar's house. He was an official in Pharaoh's government, a bigwig, but he throws Joseph in prison because of a false accusation, and Joseph just stuck there for a long time, but then God elevates Joseph up. He's number two in the country, and their assumption is Joseph and Potiphar met again, and they're like, what happened? And they were just so frustrated, they didn't know. They made up lots of great stories. You know, and so we, we, have, we, so we have all this. The Bible sometimes frustrates us because it doesn't tell us everything that we're curious about. Now, the answer we theologians give is that the Bible isn't total history. The Bible is redemptive history. God tells us, what we need to know in order to understand how God has redeemed us and brought us into a relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. So what he tells us is what we need to know. But that's a double-edged sword. Because sometimes we come across passages and we ask, why is that in the Bible? Right? Like some of the stories of Samson and some of us, why is that in the Bible? Right? Because they're just confusing kind of stuff. So when you, when you see some of the Israelites wiping out entire villages, you know, just because they're mad, what is that? Why is that in the Bible? Right? But the book of Exodus, the chapter we're going to look at today, I think it also comes to that kind of question, right? We're going to read through it. It's like, all right, well, you know, that, there's some stuff in there, but, you know, why do we really need to know that stuff? So, if you would, I want you to grab a Bible, because this, this is going to be an interactive message, at least here at the beginning, right? So I'm going to read chap, Exodus chapter 18 to you, and when we get done, 
I'm going to have you tell me why this chapter is in the Bible. All right? So it's really going to be better off if you follow along. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that's all right. There should be a Bible right underneath your chair. And you'll find our text today on page 60 of that Bible. If you brought your own, the book of Exodus is the second book in the Bible. So start at the beginning, go through Genesis, you're going to get to Exodus, and we're in chapter 18 today. And just a little background, so those of you kind of jumping into our study of Exodus and you've been away on vacation or whatever, the the Israelites now have made their way out of Egypt. They've passed through the Red Sea. The Egyptian army has been swallowed by, by the Red Sea. They've been traveling for 90 days on foot to make their way to Mount Sinai. They're just about there. So they're, they're actually camped in a place where they can see Mount Sinai off in the distance, probably two to three miles away. And we come across this encounter between Moses and his father-in-law. All right? So just follow along. I'm going to start with verse 1, read through the whole chapter. You follow along in your own Bibles, and then we'll come back and ask the question, why is this in the Bible? Why, why do we need to know this stuff in our own lives? Is a part of our own journey. So Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, that meant he was a leader. He might have been the leader, Right? Right? heard about everything that God had done for Moses and his people Israel and how the Lord had brought them out of Egypt. So now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken in Zipporah, Moses' wife. Now you ladies are in the group saying, I'm so glad my parents didn't name me Zipporah, right? You know, But Moses' wife's name was Zipporah. So Moses' father-in-law had taken in Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back along with her two sons, one of whom was named Gershom, because Moses had said, I've been a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, because he said, the God of my father was my helper and delivered me from Pharaoh's sword. Now, Moses' (coughs) father-in-law, along with Moses' wife and sons, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. And he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. You know, Jethro is a, is a leader, right? I mean, and just like the president of the United States doesn't bump into the prime minister of Britain in the grocery store, right? They, they have a summit, right? They get to, so Jethro, Midian, Jethro is sending out a word to Moses saying, I'm coming. I'm the leader of this nation. I'm coming. And so he announces that he's coming in for this summit, right? So Moses responds in kind. He goes out to meet his father-in-law, and he bows down, and he kisses him. And they asked each other how they had been, and they went into the tent. And Moses Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships they had confronted on the way, and how the Lord had, had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Praise the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from Pharaoh and the power of the Egyptians and snatched the people with the power, from the power of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. So then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, 
brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And and Aaron came with the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in God's presence. So they celebrated, right? The next day, Moses sat down to judge the people. And they stood around Moses from morning until evening. The judges sat, the people stood. That's just the way it was, right? So when Moses' father-in-law saw everything he was doing for for them, he asked, what what is this thing you're doing for the people? Why are you alone sitting as judge? Well, all the people stand around you from morning until evening. Some of you have asked the exact same question when you've gone to the RMV, right? You know, why aren't there more people working here while you stand in line for three and a half or four hours, right? Which I did recently. So recent, just venting, pastoral venting from the pulpit. Here we go. Verse 15. So Moses replied to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. Whenever they have a dispute, It comes to me, and I make a decision between one man and another. I teach them God's statutes and laws. What you're doing is not good. That's exactly what you always want to hear from your father-in-law, right? You know, you're stupid. What you're doing is not good, Moses' father-in-law said to him. You will certainly wear out both yourself and these people who are with you because the task is too heavy for you. You can't do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you some advice and God be with you. In other words, you, you, you take it to God and you figure out if what I'm giving you is good advice. You be the one to represent the people before God and bring their cases to him. Instruct them about the statutes and the laws and teach them the way to live and what they must do. But you've got to select from all the people, able men, God-fearing, trustworthy people, ones who hate bribes, Place them over the people as commanders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And and they should judge the people at all times. They can bring you all the important cases. We might use the word the precedents, right? The ones we're going to, you know, we're not really sure about. But they can bring you all the important cases, but judge every minor case themselves. In this way, you will lighten the load and they will bear it with you. If you do this, and God so directs you, you're going to be able to endure. And also the, all these people will be able to go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. So Moses chose able men from all Israel. And he men them leaders over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, and fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times. They would bring the hard cases to Moses, but they would judge every minor case themselves. And then Moses said goodbye to his father-in-law, and he journeyed to his own land. So I come back to our question. Why is this chapter in the Bible? What do you think it is that God's trying to say to us? Why do you think this chapter is in the Bible? What? Okay. So there's a lesson in there about... Delegating, right? And sharing and shared responsibility, okay? I can wait a long time. All right, here we go. Please. Okay, I I think there's a word in there where we need each other and we need God's guidance in the midst of it. Absolutely, okay? 
The first service did way better than you guys. Just no pressure, all right? But they just did way better than you guys, right? Why is this in the scriptures? Okay, so there is a lesson in there about organization, all right? Okay. Mike. Yep. Okay. So there, there is this theme that now you have a non-Israelite, a Midianite, not only that, a Midianite leader, and that meant he was a leader of their religious practice. You have him acknowledging that even though there are lots of gods, so there's still some revelation that needs to go on, some understanding to get the monotheism, that the God of the Israelites is above all the other gods. So there's that element going on. Yes. So, and I think this is a, an important element as well. It shows the humility that in order to be a, lead, a servant leader, you have to be humble, right? You, 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 you know, you're serving the Lord and other people can... And so the, the role of humility in our spiritual journey is clearly evident. And, and not that your father-in-law is the easiest person to take that from. Especially when you get the sense, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute... You know, you can just imagine what Jethro's reaction was when Moses came back from Mount Sinai back in chapter 3, and 2 and 3, right? Comes back and tells his father-in-law, Oh, I've met God, and I'm supposed to go to Pharaoh and, and, and release all the people all by myself. And Jethro's saying, Right. You know, it's like a T-baller trying to hit a 100-mile-an-hour fastball, right? It's just, just you know, it's not, and, and so he's, and, you know, so, and now Jethro's like, Wow, look what God did. Right? And so there's a lot of pieces in there. Yeah. Anyone else? Just because you don't answer the question doesn't mean my sermon's going to be any shorter. All right? I just want you to know that. Yeah. Right. Yep. So, so part of what you're saying is, and let me phrase it in my own terms, that sometimes being a great servant leader means that you also have to be a great follower, right? So Moses is one, once again being reminded that he not only needs to follow God, but he also, that God can use other people to direct him in that journey. And, and that's a tremendous lesson for all of us to learn, that, that in order to lead, we also have to follow. If we're not following God, we're really not leading anywhere when it comes to being a servant leader. And there's a lot of pieces that go with that. Well, let me have pack a few things with it for you, right? Because I don't want us to go past lunchtime today. Certainly, there is a role in this passage of Scripture where it just plays a matter of information. There is a necessity for us to understand some things, or not just us, but also all the Israelites through their history. And so, a couple of the things that really come out as a matter of information is, one is, what about Moses' family, right? Lineage, family, is massively important in the Old Testament. That's why we have all kinds of lineages. And we have one earlier in the book related to Moses and Aaron, but here they're trying to pass it on. And so in the mix of this journey, so who, 
You know, what happened to Moses' wife? Who were his kids? Whatever. And it creates some questions for us because we had never heard of Eleazar before you get to this passage of Scripture. We know that Moses had sent his wife and, and his other son Gershom back to her father's house when he was getting ready to go into Egypt, presumably because the it was going to be dangerous for them, right? She's a weak point, right? You know, if we're going to get to Mo- Moses, let's go after his family. Let's go after his son. So he sends them back. And here we, now all of a sudden, when she comes back again, there's a second kid, you know, and this whole delivery, you know, God has delivered me, you know, the God of my father has delivered me from the sword. Well, most people think that relates to the Red Sea. And that's only three months ago. And last time I checked, you were pregnant for nine months, not for three months. So what's the whole story? So it creates lots of questions. But God is just trying to share with us the story, the lineage. And that would have been important to the Israelites. The, the, the second piece of information is, how is it that the people of God came to be organized the way they were? Right? And, and, and so some of this is old thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. That's not unique, but how did that get adopted by the Israelites? And, and, and I think some of the authenticity of this story comes to us because it came from a Midianite. It came from a non-Hebrew, right? It, it came from something, you know, so it's like, you know, Try, like if we were going to have like ISIS teaches us about how to do democracy, right? You know, I mean, it's like, we said, that's not going to work. Well, the only reason it has any merit is because it actually happened. That's the way it was. Jethro shows up and he says to Moses, you know, this isn't going to work, you know, and you need to put some structure in. And, and what you see is that there's this element that goes in there. And, you know, some of you are like, I don't really care. But, you know, most would have done it all by hierarchy. If you were born to the right family, you were in charge. Didn't matter how stupid you are, you were the next lord of whatever, right? You know, or the, or the uh, duke of whatever, you know, or the duchess of whatever. Didn't matter, you know. I, he said, you've got to pick able people, people of character, who fear God, who aren't going to take bribes. And it's based upon a matter of character. It's not based upon your family. And that whole emphasis is brought out here very strongly. The second element, and Mike hinted at this, is that God, there is a progressive sense of revelation that goes through the scriptures. Now, don't fall asleep and say, oh man, your eyes glaze over. Whatever. Just hang in there with me for a minute, right? You know, it, it's not like, you know, it just jumps from zero to 60, just like that. God is showing us. So part of the journey that's going on here is that, you know, you, you know, we sung about that all thy works are going to praise thy name just a, a few minutes ago in the old hymn, Holy, 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 right? And, and, and here you start to see this moving out, and, and you see the progression. I mean, at first, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is just a God among gods. By what God has done in Egypt, he has now taught a Midianite who worships other gods, that God, even though there are lots of gods, right, up above, there's a God who's above all the other gods, and that's Yahweh. And so that's a progression in Revelation. It's actually going to take a major leap forward in chapter 19, when God tells Moses to tell the people, all the earth is mine. And what God is, really, what God is revealing through Moses to the people is, I'm the only God. I'm not just a God among gods or the, the God among gods. I am the only God. And you see this progressive revelation, and there's a need for us. But you also see in progression that, that it's, not just, it's not just Israel who's acknowledging it. Now you have the Midianites. 
right? This is a non-Israelite group. They came from Abraham, but they're not worshiping Yahweh. And it's just a part of the progression that's going to reach its culmination, as God tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, where every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And you see this progression. And, and there's a part of this where this progressiveness is, is, is also symptomatic of the fact that God is a promise keeper. And, and you see that in a couple places in this text. One, for, for the overarching, if you go back and understand the book of Genesis, and we don't have time to unpack it all, but this whole journey started with Abraham. And God says to Abraham, you know what? I'm gonna, all the nations are going to be blessed by you. And all the nations are going to come to you. And you see this in chapter 12 and verse 15, chapter 15 and chapter 22. Now you start to see that in the Amenonites, right? They're starting to come and they're starting to be blessed because of the Israelites. And God is keeping his promise says, to Abraham. You also see that, that you know, Abraham is, is hearing these promises from God. You're going to make you a great nation. Your descendants. He says, I, I got no kids. You know, last time I checked, in order to have a lot of descendants, you had to have kids. I got no kids. You know, can't you just take, you know, um, you know the, Ishmael, you know, who was born to my... No, it's going to come through. And, and here you see that the people have become so large that they require this intricate organization in order to be served. God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham that his descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars are in the sky. And God is keeping his promise. You know, even the very names and, and, and the experience of, 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 of Moses. If you go back to chapter 3, right? It, Moses is, is meeting with God at the burning bush. And, and, and he says to God, well, how am I going to know all this stuff is going to come true? And God says, well, when you lead all the people back here to worship me at Mount Sinai, then you're going to know all this stuff is true. He says, you know, you're going to know it's, what I promised you is all true after it happens, Right? But what you see here in Exodus chapter 18 is that they're standing in eye shot of Mount Sinai. And God is saying to Moses, see, I kept my promise. You're back here with the people to worship me. And so these messages of not only do we get the information about kind of how they're organized and in Moses' family and stuff, but we see that God is spreading his glory. He's spreading his presence, his increasing the understanding of who he is and how he works. And, and with that, he's displaying the fact that he is a promise keeper. He has kept his promise to Abraham and his descendants now are as numerous as the stars in the sky, right? And he's kept his promise to, to Moses. He has led the people through him back to Mount Sinai to worship him. And God is communicating all this stuff to us through this passage of Scripture. But, but I want to go just another layer deeper. And... and you know, we've been processing the book of, of, of Exodus with this theme of their story is our story. And, and what we mean by that is that when we see God calling them out from Egypt and calling them to a relationship with himself, we also see that God is calling us out from a life without God, a life of sin, and he brings us through the redemption we have in Jesus into a relationship with himself. And the same dynamics that they go through in their journey, we go through. And so God is trying to teach us some things. And, and some of you have, have hit on this right up front. You know, the idea that, that in order for you and I to make this journey, we can't do it alone. 
our little core value as a church is faith is a team sport. You know, the, the, the phrase that echoes down through the history of faith to us over the centuries is Jethro's comment, you cannot do it alone. And I got to tell you, I, I wonder how many people are sitting in this room today who have not confided spiritually in anybody else in the last two or three months. Maybe outside of your family. Maybe you've talked to your wife about it or your husband about it or whatever. But how many of you have actually had a spiritual conversation about where you are in your journey with God in the last month or two months with somebody else? And God shouts down through history, you cannot do it alone. It tries to echo, right? I'm not very good at echoing. So, you know, and, 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 God called, and he's designed everything for us to be interdependent. Not only are we in our spiritual development, our ability to go from seeing that God is a God among gods to where God is a, the God above gods to the fact that God is the only God, that all takes a journey of doing it together. And, and we need to be engaged. That's why we're always constantly trying to give you a push to get into a life group and things. But, but the other flip side of this is that part of our journey in growing in our understanding of faith is finding our place to serve. You know, I mean, in order for this new model to work is that there had to be people who were willing to take the job of commanding a thousand. And there had to be willing people who were willing to take the job of leading a hundred and leading fifty and of leading 10. And I got to tell you, I, I, I think we have a tremendous staff at Hope Chapel. You know, Ken and Steve and Christina are, are tremendous. Bethany was great to have on our staff. And I'm sure the next person who comes into our children's role will be... But, you know, you look at it, even with the five of us, with our children's role filled, I mean, there are over 750 people, at least, who consider Hope Chapel to be their church home. That, that's one, that's for each staff member, that's 150 people. How, how, many, how many kids do we have in a classroom in school? We shoot for 20, 21, 22. I think a lot of the teachers would rather have 16, 17, 18, or maybe three, four, or five. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, 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 and you wonder why, why is the, why is the, the average size church in America 75 people or less on a Sunday morning? Because most of them have a single staff person. Some of them are bivocational. That's, that's, that's the limit of people they can serve well. And so for, or enough, for you and I, for us as a church to serve the kingdom well, it's not just the staff. It can't be even just the staff and the elders or the staff and the elders and deacons or, you know, we have missions and facilities and finance and all these other teams. It takes all kinds of roles. And what God's saying is, you know what, if, if the kingdom's going to work, if, if the people of God is going to move through the wilderness and make it into the promised land, everybody's going to find their way to plug in and connect and to serve. And that's a challenge for a lot of us because some of us, we love being able to come in, look at the back of the heads of the people in front of us and walk out the door without having to talk to anybody and not really ever feeling like I have to do anything. Now, listen, let me say from the bottom of my heart, you are welcomed here, but I'm going to try to make you nervous every single week if you keep coming because my challenge is for you to plug in because you cannot do this alone. Not only is it too heavy for one, but you yourself are going to miss out on the interaction. How do you learn how to love other people as you love yourself if you're never really connected with anybody who's outside of your family? How do you learn how to love somebody as Christ loved them when you're never in a relationship with somebody that you really don't like very much? 
You know, and, it, and there's that need for us to do this together. All right. Well, let me back up to a bigger thing. And, and, and this, God is very subtly, as he, as he communicates through Moses, telling us the story of what he's doing, is that in chapter 19, and, and, and I'd love for you to grab your Bibles again, and I'm, we're just going to read the first six verses of chapter 19. And I'm moving towards the end here, so hang in there with me. I know it's like the first sunny day we've had in a long time. Everybody's rushing to get outside and go weed their gardens, right? So um, and in the third month, on the same day of the month that the Israelites had left the land of Egypt, they entered the wilderness of Sinai. So they've been, they've, since they've crossed the Red Sea, they've been traveling for 90 days. And after they departed from Rephidim, they entered the wilderness of Sinai and they camped in the wilderness and Israel camped there in front of the mountain. They've arrived where they're going to connect with God. So Moses goes up on the mountain to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob. Otherwise, all those people who are camped out at the bottom of the mountain, this is what you've got to say to them. You've got to explain this to the Israelites. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how he carried you on eagle's wings and brought you out to me. In other words, from there to here, this has all been me. I've carried you. You know, redemption is all God, right? He says, now, if, if you have your own Bible with you, that two-letter word, if, is huge. You should circle it, underline it, draw an arrow to it. If, you'll listen to me. What did Moses do? He listened to his father-in-law, right? Now, if you listen to me, and you carefully keep my covenant, then you'll be my own possession. Out of all the peoples of the earth, although the earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests, and you'll be my holy nation, these are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. And with that, the next journey is going to take us through their preparation, and then there's the Ten Commandments. But just... Get, let, let's back up and, and try to get our hands on this because this is an incredibly important part, point for us. God has, God has done a miraculous thing. He's brought them out of Egypt. They've crossed through the Red Sea. He's brought them to the mountain. God's done all of that on his own. Now he said, I'm ready to enter into a relationship with you. But this is what's going to take. You're going to have to change. It's not, it's not going to happen by accident. You have to agree to intentionally change. You know, there's a, a study that was put out a number of years ago called Experiencing God. It says you can't stay the same and go with God. And, and, and walking with God involves perpetual change. Jethro had to change what he believed about God, right? He, he was a Midianite priest. He believed that these are the gods that make our nation work. And when God showed up and did something different through the faith of his son-in-law, he says, you know what? This is a God who's above all of our gods. He had to change what he believed. Moses, maybe out of a sense of obligation and responsibility and his passion for the people, is lined up day after day trying to answer their questions, doing the best he can for them. And he has to change the way he leads. The way he behaves. And God says, God uses both of those as an example to say, you are in a moment of opportunity. I've led you out from the land of slavery. I want to take you into the promised land. But to get there, you have to become my people. You have to become my nation. And the only way that's going to happen 
is if you change. You have to obey my commands. You have to keep my covenant. You're going to fall through. And listen, the vast, vast majority of us find change really hard. And what often we do is we get lip service. We give lip service to wanting to change, but we never really follow through. I, I read a, a, just a brief case study this week about, from a counselor who dealt with people who, who they just rec- these people, I guess, had recognized that they just, they just socially sabotage relationships over and over and over again. And I guess their biggest issue is that they were just chronic over-talkers. These one of these people would go into a relationship and all they did was would talk, 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 talk. And then people just didn't want to be with them anymore. Right? So while they're working with these people, the, 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 this counselor tried to implement a very simple strategy. So let's, let's try, try to work on this and say, so we're going to have a green light, yellow light, red light kind of mentality. First 30 seconds that you're talking, it's red light. No problem. Sorry, green light. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> This is why I have a wife who sits in the front row, right? Green light. First 30 seconds, no problem. Second 30 seconds, 30 to 60 seconds of you talking, it's yellow light. You're looking for cues as to whether or not they want you to keep talking. You get to, red, you get to 60 seconds, red light. You stop. If they want more information, they'll ask you, right? Say, well, what, what happened next? Or who was that? Or whatever. You just stop. It's 60 seconds. People say, man, that sounds like a great strategy. Right? So, all right, let's practice. All right, you, go ahead. Start talking. Six, seven, eight, nine minutes later, they'd say, am I supposed to be done yet? And they said, well, you know, that, that was eight minutes ago, right? You know, so, all right, let's try it again. They get a timer going. They still just blow right through it. All right, we got to practice at home, right? So remind yourself, put, you know, uh, you know um, red light, green light, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, write it on your dashboard, put it on your mirror, write it on your hand, that kind of stuff. And, and, and what they found is the people, even as they tried to practice, they came back and said, you know what? I don't really want to do that. And some of it was, you know what, if I keep, and, and what some of them had to come to realize was, if I keep talking, then I'm in control because I'm controlling the conversation. And I don't want it to go places where I don't want it to go. But that's just symptomatic. I, I just tell you that simple little story, and maybe some of you say, oh, I know somebody like that, you know, right? And, and you know, that's not the point. The point is, you and I find change really hard. The Israelites in the chapters that are going to unfold before us find change really hard. Those who get in on what God is doing, like Jethro, like Moses, are the ones who adopt change. They let God change what they believe. They let God change what they do. And so the challenge for us, why God sticks us in all this informational piece to keep me from saying, you know what? These guys are changing because I'm at work. And it demands change. Now it's your chance. It's your moment to change. Are you going to go from being not a people and are you going to become my people? Are you going to go from not just being a nomadic tribe or are you going to become a great nation, my nation? And, and, and it's an opportunity for change that awaits them. And that same level of chance, that opportunity, that pleading from God for us to change is true today. You cannot Stay the same and go with God. I don't care if this is the first time you've had a conversation or even listened to somebody talk about God or whether you've been church every single day since you were an infant, you know, or, or a child in your mother's womb, you know. There is a next step that every single one of us needs to take. 
if we're going to keep making the journey with God. Because walking with God is a journey of perpetual change. We've got to change what we believe. We've got to change what we do. What's your next step? What's your next step? Our teenagers are going away this week to crosswalk. What they're going to be confronted with is, what's my next step? What do I need to do to jump, to walk by faith and not by sight? What, what, what do I need to do? It's the same question to confront. What's, our, what's your next step? Let's pray together. Father, sometimes we read through your word and what we see is a bunch of details. We see history, but we don't see our story. Father, I pray you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that the Israelite story is our story. The moment that we sit in today, in this place, is just like the moment they had as they stood at the foot of the mountain of God. Are they open to change, being different, believing differently, living differently? Or are they going to stay the way they were? God, the same challenge awaits us. God, I'm grateful that what lies on the other side of a yes, I'm ready to change. Yes, I'm willing to be different. Yes, I'm willing to believe. Yes, I'm willing to live and act differently. What lies on the other side is not the mountain of God, but ultimately the promised land. So God, help us through our learning curve today so that we can take next steps with you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.